Book One, Chapter Three, Part Two of The Beautiful and Damned by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Sunlight and Moonlight. For her dinner, Gloria had taken a table in the Cascades at the Biltmore, and when the men met in the hall outside a little after eight, that person Bleakman was the target of six masculine eyes. He was a stoutening, ruddy Jew of about thirty-five, with an expressive face under smooth sandy hair, and, no doubt, in most business gatherings his personality would have been considered ingratiating. He sauntered up to the three younger men, who stood in a group smoking as they waited for their hostess, and introduced himself with a little too evident assurance. Nevertheless, it is to be doubted whether he received the intended impression of faint and ironic chill. There was no hint of understanding in his manner. "'You related to Adam J. Patch?' he inquired of Anthony, emitting two slender strings of smoke from nostrils over wide. Anthony admitted it with the ghost of a smile. "'He's a fine man,' pronounced Bleakman profoundly. "'He's a fine example of an American.' "'Yes,' agreed Anthony. "'He certainly is.' "'I detest these underdone men,' he thought coldly. "'Boiled-looking. Ought to be shoved back in the oven. Just one more minute would do it.' Bleakman squinted at his watch. "'Time these girls were showing up.' Anthony waited breathlessly. It came. "'But then,' with a widening smile, "'you know how women are.' The three young men nodded. Bleakman looked casually about him, his eyes resting critically on the ceiling and then passing lower. His expression combined that of a middle western farmer appraising his wheat crop and that of an actor wondering whether he is observed, the public manner of all good Americans. As he finished his survey, he turned back quickly to the reticent trio, determined to strike to their very heart and core. You college men! Harvard, eh? I see the Princeton boys beat you fellows in hockey!" Unfortunate man! He had drawn another blank. They had been three years out and heeded only the big football games. Whether, after the failure of this sally, Mr. Bleakman would have perceived himself to be in a cynical atmosphere is problematical, for Gloria arrived, Muriel arrived, Rachel arrived. After a hurried, "'Hello, people!' uttered by Gloria and echoed by the other two, the three swept by into the dressing-room. A moment later Muriel appeared in a state of elaborate undress and crept toward them. She was in her element. Her ebony hair was slicked straight back on her head. Her eyes were artificially darkened. She reeked of insistent perfume. She was got up to the best of her ability as a siren more popularly a vamp, a picker-up and thrower-away of men, an unscrupulous and fundamentally unmoved toyer with affections. Something in the exhaustiveness of her attempt fascinated Mari at first sight. A woman with wide hips affecting a panther-like lifeness. As they waited the extra three minutes for Gloria, and, by polite assumption, for Rachel, he was unable to take his eyes from her. She would turn her head away, lowering her eyelashes and biting her nether lip in an amazing exhibition of coyness. 
she would rest her hands on her hips and sway from side to side in tune to the music, saying, "'Did you ever hear such a perfect ragtime? I just can't make my shoulders behave when I hear that.' Mr. Bleakman clapped his hands gallantly. "'You ought to be on the stage.' "'I'd like to be,' cried Muriel. "'Will you back me?' "'I sure will.' With becoming modesty, Muriel ceased her motions and turned to Mari, asking what he had seen this year. He interpreted this as referring to the dramatic world, and they had a gay and exhilarating exchange of titles, after this manner. Muriel. Have you seen Peg of My Heart? Mari. No, I haven't. Muriel, eagerly. It's wonderful. You want to see it. Mari. Have you seen Omar the Tentmaker? Muriel. No, but I hear it's wonderful. I'm very anxious to see it. Have you seen Fair and Warmer? Maury, hopefully. Yes. Muriel. I don't think it's very good. It's trashy. Maury, faintly. Yes, that's true. Muriel. But I went to Within the Law last night, and I thought it was fine. Have you seen The Little Café? This continued until they ran out of plays. Dick, meanwhile, turned to Mr. Bleakman, determined to extract what gold he could from this unpromising load. "'I hear all the new novels are sold to the moving pictures as soon as they come out.' "'That's true. Of course, the main thing in a moving picture is a strong story.' "'Yes, I suppose so.' "'So many novels are all full of talk and psychology. Of course, those aren't as valuable to us.' It's impossible to make much of that interesting on the screen. "'You want plots first, said Richard brilliantly. "'Of course. Plots first. He paused, shifted his gaze. His paws spread, included the others with all the authority of a warning finger. Gloria, followed by Rachel, was coming out of the dressing-room. Among other things, it developed during dinner that Joseph Bleakman never danced, but spent the music time watching the others with the bored tolerance of an elder among children. He was a dignified man and a proud one. Born in Munich, he had begun his American career as a peanut vendor with a traveling circus. At eighteen he was a sideshow ballyhoo. Later the manager of the sideshow, and soon after the proprietor of a second-class vaudeville house. Just when the moving picture had passed out of the stage of a curiosity and become a promising industry, he was an ambitious young man of twenty-six with some money to invest, nagging financial ambitions and a good working knowledge of the popular show business. That had been nine years before. The moving picture industry had borne him up with it, where it threw off dozens of men with more financial ability, more imagination, and more practical ideas and now he sat here and contemplated the immortal Gloria for whom young Stuart Holcomb had gone from New York to Pasadena, watched her, and knew that presently she would cease dancing and come back to sit on his left hand. He hoped she would hurry. The oysters had been standing some minutes. Meanwhile Anthony, who had been placed on Gloria's left hand, was dancing with her, always in a certain fourth of the floor. This, had there been stags, would have been a delicate tribute to the girl, meaning, "'Damn you, don't cut in!' It was very consciously intimate. "'Well,' 
he began, looking down at her. You look mighty sweet tonight. She met his eyes over the horizontal half-foot that separated them. Thank you, Anthony. In fact, you're uncomfortably beautiful, he added. There was no smile this time. And you're very charming. Isn't this nice? he laughed. We actually approve of each other. Don't you, usually? She had caught quickly at his remark, as she always did at any unexplained allusion to herself, however faint. He lowered his voice, and when he spoke there was in it no more than a wisp of badinage. Does a priest approve the Pope? I don't know, but that's probably the vaguest compliment I ever received. Perhaps I can muster a few bromides. Well, I wouldn't have you strain yourself. Look at Muriel, right here next to us." He glanced over his shoulder. Muriel was resting her brilliant cheek against the lapel of Mari Noble's dinner-coat, and her powdered left arm was apparently twisted around his head. One was impelled to wonder why she failed to seize the nape of his neck with her hand. Her eyes, turned ceilingward, rolled largely back and forth. Her hips swayed, and as she danced she kept up a constant low singing. This, at first, seemed to be a translation of the song into some foreign tongue, but came eventually apparent as an attempt to fill out the meter of the song with the only words she knew, the words of the title. He's a rag-picker, a rag-picker, a rag-time-picking man. Rag-picking, picking-pick-pick, rag-pick-pick-pick, and so on, into phrases still more strange and barbaric. When she caught the amused glances of Anthony and Gloria, she acknowledged them only with a faint smile and a half-closing of her eyes, to indicate that the music entering into her soul had put her into an ecstatic and exceedingly seductive trance. The music ended and they returned to their table, whose solitary but dignified occupant arose and tendered each of them a smile so ingratiating that it was as if he were shaking their hands and congratulating them on a brilliant performance. Blockhead never will dance. I think he has a wooden leg," remarked Gloria to the table at large. The three young men started, and the gentleman referred to winced perceptibly. This was the one rough spot in the course of Bleakman's acquaintance with Gloria. She relentlessly punned on his name. First it had been Blockhouse, lately the more invidious Blockhead. He had requested with a strong undertone of irony that she use his first name, and this she had done obediently several times, then slipping helpless, repentant but dissolved in laughter back into Blockhead. It was a very sad and thoughtless thing. "'I'm afraid Mr. Bleakman thinks we're a frivolous crowd,' sighed Muriel, waving a balanced oyster in his direction. "'He has that air,' murmured Rachel. Anthony tried to remember whether she had said anything before. He thought not. It was her initial remark. Mr. Bleakman suddenly cleared his throat and said in a loud, distinct voice, "'On the contrary. When a man speaks, he's merely tradition. He has at best a few thousand years back of him. But woman, why, she is the miraculous mouthpiece of posterity.' In the stunned pause that followed this astounding remark, 
Anthony choked suddenly on an oyster and hurried his napkin to his face. Rachel and Muriel raised a mild if somewhat surprised laugh, in which Dick and Maury joined, both of them red in the face and restraining uproariousness with the most apparent difficulty. "'My God!' thought Anthony. "'It's a subtitle from one of his movies. The man's memorized it!' Gloria alone made no sound. She fixed Mr. Bleakman with a glance of silent reproach. "'Well, for the love of heaven, where on earth did you dig that up?' Bleakman looked at her uncertainly, not sure of her intention. But in a moment he recovered his poise and assumed the bland and consciously tolerant smile of an intellectual among spoiled and callow youth. The soup came up from the kitchen, but simultaneously the orchestra leader came up from the bar, where he had absorbed the tone-color inherent in a sidle of beer. So the soup was left to cool during the delivery of a ballad entitled, Everything's at Home Except Your Wife. Then the champagne, and the party assumed more amusing proportions. The men, except Richard Caramel, drank freely. Gloria and Muriel sipped a glass apiece. Rachel Jarrell took none. They sat out the waltzes, but danced to everything else, all except Gloria, who seemed to tire after a while and preferred to sit smoking at the table, her eyes now lazy, now eager, according to whether she listened to Bleakman or watched a pretty women among the dancers. Several times Anthony wondered what Bleakman was telling her. He was chewing a cigar back and forth in his mouth, and had expanded after dinner to the extent of violent gestures. Ten o'clock found Gloria and Anthony beginning a dance. Just as they were out of earshot of the table, she said in a low voice, "'Dance over by the door. I want to go down to the drug store.' Obediently, Anthony guided her through the crowd in the designated direction. In the hall she left him for a moment to reappear with a cloak over her arm. "'I want some gumdrops,' she said, humorously apologetic. You can't guess what for this time. It's just that I want to bite my fingernails, and I will if I don't get some gumdrops." She sighed and resumed as they stepped into the empty elevator. I've been biting them all day. A bit nervous, you see. Excuse the pun. It was unintentional. The words just arranged themselves. Gloria Gilbert, the female wag. Reaching the ground floor, they naively avoided the hotel candy counter, descended the wide front staircase, and, walking through several corridors, found a drug store in the Grand Central Station. After an intense examination of the perfume counter she made her purchase. Then on some mutual unmentioned impulse they strolled, arm in arm, not in the direction from which they had come, but out into Forty-Third Street. The night was alive with thaw. It was so nearly warm that a breeze drifting low along the sidewalk brought to Anthony a vision of an unhoped-for hyacinthine spring. Above in the blue oblong of sky, around them in the caress of the drifting air, the illusion of a new season carried relief from the stiff and breathed-over atmosphere they had left, and for a hushed moment the traffic sounds and the murmur of water flowing in the gutters seemed an elusive and rarefied prolongation of that music to which they had lately danced. 
When Anthony spoke, it was with surety that his words came from something breathless and desirous that the night had conceived in their two hearts. "'Let's take a taxi and ride around a bit,' he suggested, without looking at her. "'Oh, Gloria, Gloria!' A cab yawned at the curb. As it moved off like a boat on a labyrinthine ocean and lost itself among the inchoate night masses of the great buildings, among the now stilled, now strident cries and clangings, Anthony put his arm around the girl, drew her over to him, and kissed her damp, childish mouth. She was silent. She turned her face up to him, pale under the wisps and patches of light that trailed in like moonshine through a foliage. Her eyes were gleaming ripples in the white lake of her face. The shadows of her hair bordered the brow with a persuasive, unintimate dusk. No love was there, surely, nor the imprint of any love. Her beauty was cool as this damp breeze, as the moist softness of her own lips. "'You're such a swan in this light,' he whispered after a moment. There were silences as murmurous as sound. There were pauses that seemed about to shatter and were only to be snatched back to oblivion by the tightening of his arms about her, and the sense that she was resting there as a caught gossamer feather, drifting in out of the dark. Anthony laughed, noiselessly and exultantly, turning his face up and away from her, half in an overpowering rush of triumph, half lest her sight of him should spoil the splendid immobility of her expression. Such a kiss! It was a flower held against the face, never to be described, scarcely to be remembered, as though her beauty were giving off emanations of itself which settled transiently and already dissolving upon his heart. The buildings fell away in melted shadows. This was the park now, and after a long while the great white ghost of the Metropolitan Museum moved majestically past, echoing sonorously to the rush of the cab. "'Why, Gloria! Why, Gloria!' Her eyes appeared to regard him out of many thousand years. All emotion she might have felt, all words she might have uttered, would have seemed inadequate beside the adequacy of her silence, ineloquent against the eloquence of her beauty, and of her body close to him, slender and cool. "'Tell him to turn around,' she murmured and drive pretty fast going back." Up in the supper-room the air was hot. The table, littered with napkins and ashtrays, was old and stale. It was between dances as they entered, and Muriel Kane looked up with roguishness extraordinary. "'Well, where have you been?' "'To call up mother,' answered Gloria coolly. "'I promised her I would. Did we miss a dance?' Then followed an incident that, though slight in itself, Anthony had cause to reflect on many years afterward. Joseph Bleakman, leaning well back in his chair, fixed him with a peculiar glance, in which several emotions were curiously and inextricably mingled. He did not greet Gloria except by rising, and he immediately resumed a conversation with Richard Caramel about the influence of literature on the moving pictures. Magic. The stark and unexpected miracle of a night fades out with the lingering death of the last stars and the premature birth of the first newsboys. 
The flame retreats to some remote and platonic fire. The white heat has gone from the iron and the glow from the coal. Along the shelves of Anthony's library, filling a wall amply, crept a chill and insolent pencil of sunlight touching with frigid disapproval Therese of France and Anne the Superwoman, Jenny of the Orient Ballet and Zuleika the Conjurer, and Hoosier Cora. Then down a shelf and into the ears, resting pityingly on the over-invoked shades of Helen, Thais, Salome, and Cleopatra. Anthony, shaved and bathed, sat in his most deeply cushioned chair and watched it until at the steady rising of the sun it lay glinting for a moment on the silk ends of the rug and went out. It was ten o'clock. The Sunday Times, scattered about his feet, proclaimed by rotogravure and editorial, by social revelation and sporting sheet, that the world had been tremendously engrossed during the past week in the business of moving towards some splendid, if somewhat indeterminate, goal. For his part, Anthony had been once to his grandfather's, twice to his broker's, and three times to his tailor's. And in the last hour of the week's last day he had kissed a very beautiful and charming girl. When he reached home his imagination had been teeming with high-pitched, unfamiliar dreams. There was suddenly no question on his mind, no eternal problem for a solution and resolution. He had experienced an emotion that was neither mental nor physical, nor merely a mixture of the two, and the love of life absorbed him for the present to the exclusion of all else. He was content to let the experiment remain isolated and unique. Almost impersonally, he was convinced that no woman he had ever met compared in any way with Gloria. She was deeply herself. She was immeasurably sincere. Of these things he was certain. Beside her, the two dozen schoolgirls and debutantes, young married women and waifs and strays whom he had known were so many females, in the words most contemptuous sense, breeders and bearers, exuding still that faintly odorous atmosphere of the cave and the nursery. So far as he could see, she had neither submitted to any will of his nor caressed his vanity, except as her pleasure in his company was a caress. Indeed, he had no reason for thinking she had given him aught that she did not give to others. This was as it should be. The idea of an entanglement growing out of the evening was as remote as it would have been repugnant. And she had disclaimed and buried the incident with a decisive untruth. Here were two young people with fancy enough to distinguish a game from its reality, who by the very casualness with which they met and passed on would proclaim themselves unharmed. Having decided this, he went to the phone and called up the Plaza Hotel. Gloria was out. Her mother knew neither where she had gone nor when she would return. It was somehow at this point that the first wrongness in the case asserted itself. There was an element of callousness, almost of indecency, in Gloria's absence from home. He suspected that by going out she had intrigued him into a disadvantage. Returning, she would find his name and smile, most discreetly. He should have waited a few hours in order to drive home the utter inconsequence with which he regarded the incident. What an asinine blunder! She would think he considered himself particularly favored. 
she would think he was reacting with the most inept intimacy to a quite trivial episode. He remembered that during the previous month his janitor, to whom he had delivered a rather muddled lecture on the brother man, had come up next day and on the basis of what had happened the night before, seated himself in the window-seat for a cordial and chatty half-hour. Anthony wondered in horror if Gloria would regard him as he had regarded that man. Him, Anthony Patch. Horror. It never occurred to him that he was a passing thing, acted upon by an influence above and beyond Gloria, that he was merely the sensitive plate on which the photograph was made. Some gargantuan photographer had focused the camera on Gloria and snap, the poor plate could but develop confined like all things to its nature. But Anthony, lying upon his couch and staring at the orange lamp, passed his thin fingers incessantly through his dark hair and made new symbols for the hours. She was in a shop now, it seemed, moving lithely among the velvets and furs, her own dress-making, as she walked, a debonair rustle in that world of silken rustles and cool soprano laughter and scents of many slain but living flowers. The minis and pearls and jewels and jennies would gather round her like courtiers, bearing wispy frailties of georgette crepe, delicate chiffon to echo her cheeks in faint pastel, milky lace to rest in pale disarray against her neck. Damask was used but to cover priests and divans in these days, and cloth of samarand was remembered only by the romantic poets. She would go elsewhere after a while, tilting her head a hundred ways under a hundred bonnets, seeking in vain for mock cherries to match her lips or plumes that were graceful as her own supple body. Noon would come. She would hurry along Fifth Avenue, a Nordic Ganymede, her fur coat swinging fashionably with her steps her cheeks redder by a stroke of the wind's brush, her breath a delightful mist upon the bracing air. And the doors of the Ritz would revolve, the crowd would divide, fifty masculine eyes would start, stare as she gave back forgotten dreams to the husbands of many obese and comic women. One o'clock. With her fork she would tantalize the heart of an adoring artichoke, while her escort served himself up in the thick, dripping sentences of an enraptured man. Four o'clock, her little feet moving to melody, her face distinct in the crowd, her partner happy as a petted puppy and mad as the immemorial hatter. Then, then night would come drifting down and perhaps another damp. The signs would spill their light into the street. Who knew? No wiser than he, they haply sought to recapture that picture done in cream and shadow they had seen on the hushed avenue the night before. And they might, ah, they might. A thousand taxis would yawn at a thousand corners, and only to him was that kiss forever lost and done. In a thousand guises, Thais would hail a cab and turn up her face for loving, and her pallor would be virginal and lovely and her kiss chaste as the moon. He sprang excitedly to his feet. How inappropriate that she should be out! He had realized at last what he wanted, to kiss her again, to find rest in her great immobility. She was the end of all restlessness, all malcontent. Anthony dressed and went out, 
as he should have done long before, and down to Richard Caramel's room to hear the last revision of the last chapter of The Demon Lover. He did not call Gloria again until six. He did not find her in until eight, and, oh climax of anti-climaxes, she could give him no engagement until Tuesday afternoon. A broken piece of gutta-percha clattered to the floor as he banged up the phone. End of Book One, Chapter Three, Part Two